Philippians chapter 4, I'm just, we're going to be dealing with verse 10 through verse 20, but I just, to get us started, would like to read verses 10 through 14. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. I'd like to start our time out together by spending a little bit of time giving you some context for the letter uh, to the Philippian believers. We're jumping into ch- chapter 4 this morning, so we've, we've skipped over a lot. I, I just want to highlight a few things so that we can get the sense of who these people are and what their relationship was with Paul and why Paul responds the way he does uh, in this letter to him. Paul and these believers had been partners in the gospel for somewhere around eight, nine, ten years at this point. And out of that partnership that they had was formed a deep and abiding friendship centered on Christ. It all began back in Acts chapter 16. I'm sure you remember the story where the Holy Spirit turned Paul and his team from one direction to another and sent them to Macedonia and sent them to Philippi to preach the gospel where the gospel had not been heard before. And first up was a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, a businesswoman, a God-fearing woman, the Scripture says, who was worshiping God by the side of the river. The Apostle Paul came along and began to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with her. And the Bible tells us that the Lord opened up her heart and she believed on Christ. And she was baptized and she opened up her home for the apostle and his team to stay there. And she told her family about the gospel and the Bible tells us her whole family got saved. And that was the beginning of this church. And probably her home was the first place that they met. After she got saved, then along comes the slave girl. You remember the girl who had a demonic spirit? She was a fortune teller, and and men were using her to make money. And Paul came along, and she was doing some taunting of Paul, etc., etc., and Paul commanded the demon to come out of her. And she was cleansed and, and left whole in the name of the Lord Jesus. Following her was the Philippian jailer. Remember, Paul and Silas got beaten up pretty badly when they were in Philippi and cast into prison, into the inner stocks, the innermost part of the dungeon. And it wasn't a fun time, but they were singing hymns and rejoicing in the Lord and feeling privileged that they could suffer for the name of Jesus. 
Then the earthquake came, all this stuff happens, and the, and the jailer goes, yo, what in the world? What must I do to be saved? Like, I've been listening to you sing, I've been listening to you preach to the other guys, what must I do to be saved? And they called on him to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus, and then whatever his name was, Rufus the jailer, gets on his knees and believes in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And then he takes Paul and Silas home and cares for them, heals their wounds, bandages up their wounds, and, and tells their whole fam- his whole family about Christ. And the whole family comes to Christ. This is the beginning of that church plant. These are the people, not exactly people that you would think would mesh. A j- big, rough, tough jailer, a demon-filled teenage girl probably, and, and a businesswoman from another place. Like, this is how you're going to start a church? We didn't sit down and do that when we did Orange Tree. Well, let's see if we can find a demon-possessed girl. But this is the way God did the church at Philippi. And these believers and others who came to Christ through them were like this with each other and were like this with the missionary that shared the gospel with them. And they begged and pleaded to be part of his ministry. And we're going to find out a little bit later, they were the only church that Paul really allowed and accepted to be part of the ministry in that way of the giving and receiving. And yet this was a church that was a poor church. I don't think we would qualify for that, but Paul calls them in 2 Corinthians a poor church that gave sacrificially. Let me just read. Listen. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. This is where Philippi's church was and a couple others. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundant joy, that that sounds like it goes together, right? In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. It's not exactly this plus this equals generosity. Affliction plus poverty equals generosity. But that's what God says. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God, they gave themselves to us. Is this not the kind of testimony every church would like to have? That we as a church body have given ourselves over to the Lord. We belong to Him. He purchased us with His blood. We're His And by His will, then He uses us however He wants, even above and beyond our ability. Even above and beyond our own ability. And time and time again, this church did this. They put the interest of the ministry of the gospel above their own interests. And that was the mindset that they received when they received the gospel. I think a lot of people really don't understand the gospel who call themselves Christians. I, I really do. I mean, that's got to be true. Just, just read. 
Read Christian literature. Listen to Christian preachers on the, on the radio or on the internet or whatever. Like, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the gospel. But they understood the gospel as Paul preached it. And they understood it so well that it gave them this mindset that Paul talks about throughout the book of Philippians that comes from Christ. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. They had that. They possessed that. And so it was a recent gift that they had sent to Paul through Epaphrodites while Paul was in prison that sparked this letter that we're looking at this morning called Philippians. In the opening words of it, the words of thanksgiving, we can hear Paul's deep affection for this particular group of believers, partners in the gospel. You can look at Philippians 1 verse 3 if you'd like, or you can just listen. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, ten years later. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, Lydia, doesn't say that, but if you're in that congregation and you're hearing this read and you're Lydia, that's exactly what you're hearing Paul say. I am confident, sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, Lydia, Rufus, whoever, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace. God's wonderful gift of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, some of these people may have gone to prison and experienced a similar situation to the Apostle Paul, but I think what Paul's saying here is in your participation, in your partnership, in your fellowship over the years of the gospel, and in this most recent gift that you have sent me, you are partakers with me in the grace of God here in this prison. You have come to this prison with me through that gift. And honestly, folks, you came to Austria, the Netherlands, and Sweden with me through that gift. You couldn't all go. But you all came. Represented in that gift that was delivered from the hand of God, from the grace of God to those that we delivered them to, to the Apostle Paul. And then he says, verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. There's a missionary talking to a church that has partnered with him for many years. He didn't have to say, hey, I haven't met you guys. I don't know who you are. Heard your church changed a lot. You probably don't really know me. But I'm going to hopefully come and see you face to face. When I do, I'll introduce myself to you and tell you what I'm doing. That wasn't the case. Though they were unable to get to Paul because of his many imprisonments and who knows what else, their poverty, they finally did because they never, ever forgot him. And so Paul, when he wrote Philippians, was hoping to see them face to face, to be together with them again. But 
He didn't know whether God's will was going to allow that, and it didn't. But he didn't know one way or another. And so he takes some time to challenge them through this letter, this thank you note, really, but it's much more than a thank you note. It's no less than a thank you note, but it's more. He challenges them to continue to live for Christ and the gospel as they have been for all these years. This is not a rebuke. This is a confirmation and encouragement to keep on keeping on. Keep living for Christ the way you will. And so in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or not, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, one heart, one soul, striving together as one person together, side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then he continues in the letter to remind them of where that mindset comes. Where does the mindset of being united together in, in the same thing? We're partners in the gospel together. That's what's going on here. Do you feel that way? Is that why you're here? Because you want to be part of a church that's partnering together for the gospel. Not just missionaries, not just church planters. The discipleship that goes on in this place. The people who come to Christ because of your testimony. We're in this together. And that's the way they saw themselves and that's the reminder Paul gave them that this mindset comes from the Lord Jesus Himself. And that's where he goes in the very next chapter as he talks about the one who left heaven. Jesus, who left heaven, took on the form of a servant, humbled Himself to the point of death, even the death on the cross. That's the mindset. That Paul talks about over and over and over again that the Philippian believers had and that he himself had learned through his walk with Jesus Christ. After talking about Jesus, he holds out a couple people that they know personally. Timothy and Epaphroditus. Holds out two men who lived this kind of mindset. This putting the interest of others above themselves putting the service of the gospel at the forefront of their lives, who weren't afraid to take risks, actually risked. Epaphrodites risked his life, but risked other things so that the gospel could advance. And so at the end of chapter 2, he gives their testimony. And then chapter 3, he turns to his own life. The mindset comes from Jesus, but it's lived out through us. It's not just lived out through missionaries. It's not just missionaries who have to die to themselves and live to Christ. Right? It's not just missionaries who have to learn to be content with nothing while the rest of the world goes on with an abundance. It's the Christian. It's Timothy. It's Epaphrodites. He's probably a businessman in, in Philippi who had the opportunity to take a trip and take this gift to Paul while he was in prison. It's Christians who are called on to live this way. And so Paul gives his own life as an example of laying aside his own interests for the interests of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. And so he says in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Well-educated man, very religious very well looked up to in the religious world of Judaism. 
And he said, I, I lost it all. I, I put it all aside for the knowledge of Christ, which is so far better. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count it but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He says in another place the same phrase a little bit differently. To, be, have, to have my life hidden in Christ. Think of a scared little kid who's hiding in his mom's lap with a blanket around him, protected completely. That's the picture. To be in Christ. To be safe. To be eternally safe. Protected. Cared for. And that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. That I may know the power of His life. That's what he's saying. That I may know in my life the power of Jesus' resurrected life. Which he says many times in many different ways. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. Right? He says it over and over again. Many different ways. It was the passion of his life to know Christ and to know the power of his life living in him and to become like him in his death. Paul talked about dying daily to himself. That this was part of what it meant to be a Christian. Was to put self behind and Christ in his rightful place as Lord. This is what Paul learned to do. As a believer. And I don't think it happened overnight. Uh, We all know the phrase he says earlier in Philippians. For me to live is Christ. Even to die like death death. Is gain. For the believer. For the one whose life is Christ. Death is truly gain. So. After supporting this mindset that he has. And that this church has, that has partnered together with him in the advance of the gospel in places the gospel had never been. He leaves them with thoughts of his own life, his own actions, his own attitudes, and says to them in chapter 4, and I'm just going to summarize real quick, love one another, stand together, agree together, labor together, Rejoice together. And by all means, pray together. Take those anxious thoughts, that discontentment that rustles through your life, and take it to the Lord. Bring everything before the Lord in prayer with an attitude of thanksgiving that God hears and God loves. And then he says in verses 7, 8, 9, and the peace of God. That contentment of heart that comes from God, which surpasses all understanding. We, We can't define it to someone. We can't explain it. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
turn your anxiety to prayer. Go before the God who listens and hears and answers. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your heart, protect you in Christ Jesus, guide you, your thinking. And then he says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, keep on practicing these things. And the God of peace will be with you. It's at this point that we enter into the passage that we're going to look at together, verses 10 through 20. It's Paul's last thoughts in this thank you note. It's his last thank you to these believers who had sacrificed deeply to be part of his ministry, to demonstrate their love and their commitment to him. But it's not only a thank you for their partnership and friendship. He also shares with them a glimpse into his own journey to the place that he got to where the God of peace truly reigned and does reign in his heart with the peace that only comes vertically. Let's be honest. One of our problems is we're trying to find peace this way. Dead battery, dead battery, okay? We're trying to find peace in our friendships with others, in our relationships with our spouse and our children, with the things that we purchase at the store, the jobs that we have, the prestige that comes with those jobs or not. And it's all horizontal. And none of it, none of it brings the peace of God. That comes vertically. From us learning contentment in His will and purposes for our lives and in that alone. So what Paul's saying to us here this morning in these verses is God can be trusted. Now, my, my big idea is longer than that. I would get a D, maybe an F from a preaching professor if he heard this. But I'm sorry, it's me, right? So uh, I want to say God can be trusted, but that doesn't say everything that the passage says. So let me say it to you. God can be trusted to provide all the material needs for both the givers and the receivers. God can be trusted to supply you with what you need to meet the need of your partners who are out there doing something that you can't do but you get to do with them as you partner together with them. So God can be trusted to provide all the material needs for both the givers and the receivers who partner in the advance of the gospel. Sorry for the long sentence. You see, Paul found his contentment in the spiritual resources that were his in Christ. And he shares three of those with us in this passage, and it's a simple outline, and we're going to go fairly quickly. So, Justin, do not worry. Relax. Listen to the Word of God. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Trust your elders. Whatever it takes. 
the first resource talked about in this passage of Scripture from verses 10 through 20 is found in verse 10. And it's the providence of God. It's that working of God in advance to arrange circumstances and situations for the fulfilling of His purposes. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about God's providence. God is at work. God is at work. And we see Paul responding to that in verse 10. Listen to verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Let me just stop there. Uh, In English, it depends on what version that you're reading, but even in the Greek New Testament, this isn't the way you and I would say thank you. Uh, Matter of fact, over the years, there have been many Western theologians who have called this the thankless thank you. Like, Paul, why didn't you just come out and say thank you? Instead of saying, well, kind of what it sounds like, it sounds like you're saying, well, I rejoice in in the Lord greatly that you finally got off your duff and sent me a gift. And that's kind of how it sounds. But that's not at all what he means. It may sound like that to us in English. Why didn't he just say, thank you so much for that gift? It was such a blessing. But he points to the Lord where his satisfaction is. He points to the Lord where the gift came from. The gift didn't come from the Philippian believers. It came through the Philippian believers. The gifts that you sacrificially gave over the past several weeks that I got to take and deliver to those missionaries didn't come from you, according to Paul. It came from God. God enabled you. God stirred your heart to give. Not everybody gave. Not everybody needed to give. Not everybody's supposed to give. But God stirred the hearts of some of his people in this congregation to give, and they gave sacrificially, and we took an amazing gift to three different families who are serving the Lord Jesus in the gospel in Europe. And God deserves the praise for that. We ought to be rejoicing in the Lord for his providence of moving in your heart or in the heart of the people who sit behind you or in whoever's heart he moved to have our church represented in such a powerful way in the lives of people who are laying it out for the gospel in very difficult situations. So Paul is saying thank you, even though it doesn't sound like that. Now, there's a, you could do a really good study on the Greco-Roman uh, friendship and how gift-giving and receiving is part of that. And um, it's, I couldn't get my head around it to do it simply. And so what came to my mind was something that I learned being on the other side of the world in a culture totally opposite ours, in a language nothing like ours, as I'm learning the language, learning the people, I found out that in that culture, they don't say please. They don't use the word. They don't say please pass me the salt. They don't say thank you after you pass the salt. They don't even say goodbye when you're on the phone. 
Hey, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Oh, what have you been doing today? Oh, not too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I plan on coming over. Okay, yeah. Hmm? 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 And you're on the other end. You go, hello? (laughs) They hung up on me. They never said goodbye. But they did in their culture. They didn't do it the American way that I had spent 50 years doing it. They didn't say, please, the American way that I've been taught to do it, the Christian way. They don't say, thank you, the way we do here in America, rude people. But they do. They say it their way, in the intonation of their words, in the expressions of what they say and do. You have to learn it. And Paul is giving us a little lesson in saying thank you as well as Christians. He doesn't think that giving and receiving is a two-way street. He thinks it's dangerous for it to be a two-way street. And I think you would agree. I don't know if you've ever listened to some TV shows with preachers who raise millions and millions of dollars and how they go about doing that, talking to you and making you feel guilty even though you're in your living room. Maybe you've even had a missionary come to your church who said thank you for all the things you have done for them. And when they got done thanking you, you thought, he's asking for more money. Like I feel manipulated a little bit. And that's what happens when it's a two-way street. You giving, me receiving. Or me giving, you receiving. Paul says, no, 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 no. It's a three-way street. It's the giver, the church, it's the receiver, the missionary, and it's God and the gospel, the good news. And you can't do it any other way and do it in a way that glorifies God. And that's why Paul comes and says, I rejoice in the Lord. He's the one that motivated you to give. He's the one that empowered you to give, to get that job, to, do, to, to bring that income in. And he's the one that gave you that gift. He gave you that job. No, he didn't. I went to school for 17 years and I worked real hard. No, God gave you the job you have. God meets your needs. That's what Paul says over and over and over again. It's it's God. And when we think that way, when God is at the center, when Christ is at the center, then we know that our giving is part of what God's doing in our life. And if God's not stirring me to give, then I'll, I'll... He must be stirring me to do something else, right? We're all uniquely gifted of God to do stuff. Some people are actually gifted to give. You don't meet them too often, but there are people who will admit God has gifted them to give. And they go at it with all their heart. Praise God. And some are gifted to listen, come alongside somebody and counsel to show mercy, to disciple, to give a helping hand. Everybody's gifted differently. So there's no guilt here. But when Paul talks about this topic of contentment, why is this so important? Is it only so that we'll give more? You know, if you could be content with what you had and you didn't buy that new car, you could give that whatever that cost of that car is to the church. Is that what he's saying? 
No, contentment will free you up to sit down and listen to the person whose heart is broken and needs someone to hear them out. But if you're not content, you'll be rushing off to do all the things that you're trying to do to make yourself content. Is God in control or is he not? Is God the one who is meeting your needs and using you to meet other people's needs? Or are you in charge of that? And Paul says it's God. And he's so thankful for that. It just brings rejoicing to his heart. And it's a reminder to these Philippians. It's not a rebuke. It's a reminder that this is a threesome. We're in this together with God, and your giving is a reflection of His work in your life. The providence of God. God allows us to get hooked up with certain missionaries. God allows our church to be able to support those missionaries. God allows us to do all the things that we do, whatever they are, whatever part of ministry you're in, the children's ministry, whatever it is, God is the one that is providentially working behind the scenes to make this happen. And our recognizing that about God changes the way we think and the way we function. If God is in control, then I can rest. And I can allow Him to use my gifts to bring glory and honor to Him. The second resource comes out in the next few verses together. And it's the power of God. The providence of God is at work in our life, but so also is the power of God. This is not something that we can sort of drum up ourselves. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need. So Paul even says, I'm not even talking about that I have any needs. I don't have any needs. Well, that's not very grateful. They just gave him an abundant gift, and his response is, I didn't need it. Well, technically... In some aspect, the missionaries that we just blessed with those gifts didn't need them. They were, they were living day to day without them. It was above and beyond what they were. They didn't know it was coming. It was a blessing from the hand of God. And they recognized it that way. And so Paul says, I'm not speaking of being unique because I have learned something. That in whatever situation I am in, I've learned to be content. I think it's important that we don't move past this without realizing Paul learned this. This didn't magically happen to Paul one day on the road to Damascus. Now, that was certainly the beginning. But if you read through the letters to Corinth and you read through his life and the difficulties and the shipwrecks and the beatings and the stonings and all that stuff, that was life's experiences of ups and downs that was the school in which he learned contentment. And we're all in different schools here, but we're all supposed to be learning the same lesson in those schools. That's how to rely on God, that God really does care about us, that really, God really does have it all together. And that's where Paul got in his life. We don't know exactly where it was that that happened, but we know he's there now. And this is not too far away from his death. So we honestly do not know how long it took Paul to learn to truly know that Christ would meet his every need even when he's in prison with no food, very little clothing, no friends, 
chained to a guard. He learned God is taking care of him. Everything is good. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In every circumstance, I I think most of us, truly, I think most of us have learned how to be content in difficulty. Right? We've all, like if you've been alive for any length of time, you've been in some pretty deep things. And as a believer, you learn to run to God at those times. Do you not? Do you not realize, hey, I can't do this. Like, I can't do this. But God can do this. And I'm going to run to God. And so many of us, time and time again, have learned how to be content in our relationship with God, knowing that God will providentially take care of us if we trust Him. But how many of us have had to learn or have had the opportunity to learn to be content in prosperity? Now, all of us live in prosperity. This is the thing. It's hard to preach this to Americans. Truly hard. It's hard to preach this in a part of the world where food, clothing, and shelter isn't what makes you content. Because that's not what makes Americans content. But that's what the Bible says is to bring contentment into our lives. To have those basic needs that God takes care of. So it's hard for us. We have so much. And I know you're sitting there, you don't have that much compared to the guy sitting behind you. I get that. But compared to 90% of the rest of the world, you are filthy rich. (laughs) Yep. How many of us have learned being in the wealthiest nation on earth? How many of us have learned to be content to not be looking horizontally to get something that's going to comfort our heart, but to be content with our relationship with Christ and Him alone. That is not easy. And Paul said he learned it. And Paul said he learned it so that the Philippians would learn, even Lydia, the businesswoman, that this can be learned. That even as wealthy, prosperous people, Our lives can be about Christ in us, the hope of glory. That it's not about my job. It's not about what I have. It's about my walk with Christ. And I can be content there. I uh, wrote down a quote. I'll read it real quickly from Calvin, who said this. He who knows how to use present abundance soberly and temperately with thanksgiving, prepared to part with everything whenever it may please the Lord, giving also a share to his brother according to his ability, and is also not puffed up? Now that man has learned to excel and to abound. This is an excellent and rare virtue, and much greater than the endurance of poverty. Paul learned that. And Paul's telling the Philippian believers, they can learn that. They can live this way. And he's telling you and I in prosperous America, we can be content. We don't have to have the next best whatever. We can be content 
loving Jesus, serving Jesus, content with food, clothing, as the Scripture teaches. And then real quickly, we've got four minutes left. I will do this, Justin, I will. The third resource on our way towards contentment and our learning contentment is the promise of God. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in the giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, time and time again. This poverty-stricken church sacrificed to give because they wanted to be part of the advance of the gospel through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so Paul says, I'm not seeking the gift. He says that again. I want to remind you that I'm not seeking the gift. What I'm seeking is the fruit that increases to your credit. See, Paul's heart was he was rejoicing in the Lord because of the spiritual fruit that was going on evidenced by the sacrificial giving of this church. Like they're growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Their focus is on the advance of the gospel. This is something that only God can do in somebody's life. You can't force somebody to give sacrificially. Only cheerful givers give sacrificially. And that's what these folks had done. And he was rejoicing in the Lord because of the spiritual fruit that was so evident in their life and increasing towards their credit. And then he looks at his own life and says, look guys, I had received full payment and more. Paid in full. You overdid it. You gave me more, way more than I needed. I'm well supplied. I received the gift that you sent me. And brothers and sisters, it's a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You see where his thank you goes back again? Here's what's so special about your sacrificial offering. It was given to God. It was motivated in your heart by God. Empowered from God to get it. Gifted by God. And the needs were met by God through you. And for God, it's a sweet-smelling sacrifice. That's how God views our sacrificial giving. Specifically, your giving a month ago to those missionaries. And so he says in verse 19, as he gives them a promise, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Listen, folks, this is a memory verse that most of you have memorized. This is a verse that's thrown around by every Christian on the planet, hoping that God really will pour out his riches in their life. It fits into the prosperity gospel. Great if you take it out of context. And so let me just go back and reread to you what I said at the beginning in that long crazy sentence at the beginning. God can be trusted. God can be trusted to provide all the material needs for you as the giver and for the receiver as well who partner together in the gospel. There's the qualifier. Whether you're a giver involved in missions in this church 
Whether you're a goer, we're praying that there's people from within our church that will raise up from our church like Josh and Miriam and their family and go. Whether you're a giver, whether you're a goer, whether you're working with the children, whether you're passionate about helping with some construction job that needs to be done in church, whatever it is that God has gifted and passioned and placed in your heart to give, that cooperation, that partnership in the gospel is what qualifies this promise of God. God will supply every need of yours materially, because that's the context, according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. If you're in it for the gospel, if you're a partner in some fashion in this church, not a spectator, this promise of God is not for spectators. This promise is for participants, for people who love Christ, who want to learn how to have Christ the center of everything in their life and will participate however God gifts them to do. It will be different than the people next to him. And so let me just leave you with a couple of practical applications. How can we... Look, I'm a missionary. So my applications to you today are basically focused on missions. Johnny and Anna Lethel have been through a very difficult couple of years over in Sweden. Uh, Anna's health has been poor. She's had a baby recently. Um, It's been a very, very difficult road. And we were praying for them, and we, in our conversations with them, said, is there, is there any way we could help? You know, we're not Swedish. We're Americans. We don't want to stick our nose in your business. But, you know, we do have a girl in our church, and we have a couple of them, actually, who would be willing to go to Sweden and be on call 24-7 to be of help to your family and your home. But we don't want to push ourselves in there. And on this trip over there, I sat down with Anna, and with um, Johnny, talked through that, and they said, if someone in your church would be willing to come help us in that way, we would be absolutely thrilled. Well, Faith Tonneson has been praying about this for some time. She's preparing for it. She plans to leave in January for two months, maybe longer, to live with Johnny and Anna and help with their children, help with their English, help in any way that she can possibly help. So how can you, being content with what you have and where God has you, participate with faith in Sweden? Well, it's going to cost about four grand for her to go. So somebody here, or somebody's here, if God stirred your heart, could help get her there. It helps support her while she's there so she's not a burden, not another mouth to feed, but a blessing to Johnny and Anna and to their gospel ministry in Sweden. Uh, Some of you could pray for her. I think faith is way more interested in prayer support than financial support. She really is. That's not, no kidding. But that means more than saying, hey, I'll pray for you. You know, maybe somebody here would say, hey, every week 
that Anna is in Sweden. I'll gather together with you or, or you, whoever would like to join me. We'll get together on Zoom or we'll get together at church or we'll get together at my house and we're going to pray for Faith and the requests that she has while she's over there. That's, and praying for Johnny and Anna and for their ministry. That's just one way that you could be involved. Praying for Faith, praying for Josh and Miriam, once they're gone and in Austria, we want to have a prayer team that's dedicated from Faith Bible Church to remember them so that 10 years from now, we will have the same affection in our heart that the Apostle Paul had for the believers in Philippi. You and I can do that. God gives us opportunity to give. He gives us opportunity to pray. Some could even go visit them on a business trip. Who knows what? But we need to put feet to a life of contentment where life isn't about my interests and me getting everything I want out of life, but it's about the interests of the gospel and how can God use me here at Faith Bible to partner in the gospel of Christ. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for your people today. Pray that your word would find its proper place in our life and that we wouldn't walk out of here with any guilt but just excitement that we can be involved in some small part around the globe being involved in the people's lives who are serving Christ in many different ways. So, Lord, we love you. Please do your work. Please teach us. Please help us to grow. Help us to learn. Help us to truly be disciples, learners of what it means to rest, to be content, to experience the peace that passes all understanding. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.